Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Um, so we are, uh, for those of, who don't know, this is Women's Heritage Month. And City Church, we always have women preach here, uh, in part because one of our pastors is a woman, and she's an amazing preacher. Um, but we really wanted to lean in hard this month, and so we've asked some, uh, some of our leaders to, to help us. And so we've heard a couple of amazing sermons uh, so far. And today, our very own pastoral intern, Donna Berkland, is going to bring the word, uh, and it's amazing. So super excited for you, Donna. Really appreciate your leadership uh, around City Church and appreciate your leadership this morning. Awesome. Thank you, Bill. Well, um, I started sermon prepping uh, and I started sermon prepping by asking people on my Instagram story what they wanted to hear because the sermon series this month is what is the sermon that you want the church to hear? And I was going to do something completely different. I was going to talk about one of the topics that um, people suggested on my Instagram story. But as I was listening to JC and Laura preach, those are the two people who preached the last two weeks for this series, I realized that they were preaching sermons they wanted to hear for themselves. They were preaching to nine-year-old JC and nine-year-old Laura, and they were saying to themselves, you belong here. And something I feel uncomfortable with still is taking up space. Even though this is my first official solo sermon, I don't feel comfortable taking up this much space. The thought of preaching a sermon to nine-year-old Donna never occurred to me. This nine-year-old who in Sunday school was told by a boy that girls couldn't be pastors and her saying very loudly with no knowledge of scripture, no, that's not true. I was about to miss out on preaching a sermon I wanted to hear because I've decided my needs are not important and the issues that impact me are not important. And what that tells me is that I, like so many women, have neglected my needs, the need to feel seen, the need to feel heard, to feel fully loved, and especially for me, the need to feel respected. I have felt so disrespected by the church to the point that my voice doesn't feel like it matters. I feel so conditioned not to think my voice matters. And so I'm going to reclaim my voice this morning. And I hope that if you have been silenced that you can reclaim your voice as well. Now, I've always wanted to hear a woman tackle a very uncomfortable passage at the pulpit that historically has impacted women negatively. So I'm going to do that this morning, and I'm gonna do that by inviting my friend Haru, who's gonna go ahead and unmute their mic and read our passage for today. Good morning, everyone. I apologize if I make um, word faces while I read this passage is from 
Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Haru. I really appreciated your um, facial expressions. I think those were very important and the right tone for this this morning. So I wanted to start, so there's our passage. I wanted to start before, as we, as we enter in this passage and talk about Midrash. So JC who spoke about two weeks ago, talked about um, Midrash and she referenced Will Gaffney. And a group of us are actually reading a book by Gaffney right now called Womanist Wood Midrash. And Gaffney explains in her book, The Practice of Midrash. It'll be in the chat, um, the definition here. According to Gaffney, Midrash is a form of biblical interpretation that reimagines dominant narratival readings while crafting new ones to stand alongside, not replace, former readings. This sacred imagination tells the story behind the story the story between the lines on the page. So in other words, practicing Midrash is both making and listening to new forms of interpretation of scripture and adding to the story or passage by looking between the lines of what is not said. Christians have practiced this by looking between the lines of what is not said and adding to the text without knowing it. Let's take the Trinity, for example. Even though scripture doesn't use the word Trinity, we've established the doctrine of the Trinity to describe the workings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now an issue happens when only one type of person is engaging, engaging in reading between the lines. Unfortunately, in my faith tradition, the people who took up space and sat at the table of interpretation were men. And this is true across cultures, like our larger American culture. Men, namely cisgendered straight white men, are not only allowed at the table to practice midrash, but they are expected at the table as the main guest. I'll say that again, they are expected at the table as the main guest. So when we read Pauline theology, Paul and the writers of the epistles or letters in the Greek scriptures had their own theology, their own version of Midrash, their own lenses. So historically men, even well-meaning egalitarian men, like Bill White, have talked a lot about Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 through their own lens. They may, even make, they may have even made sure to include verse 21 that talks about everyone submitting to each other. And I'm not even going to talk about verse 21 today or the original Septuagint translation, um, not having the word submit in verse 22. I'm going to talk as a woman who has not had any space at the table to talk about this passage, which has historically oppressed, abused, and dehumanized women. Women need to have a big seat at the table to talk about issues and verses that affect them. 
As Pastor Brenna pointed out in a previous sermon, the Bible holds a conversation between different ideas about divinity. And this conversation is often revealed as a pro progression of ideas, not necessarily in a linear fashion between canonized books to, of the Bible, but progress based on time period, geographical location, socio-political situations. So since we don't live in this ancient period where scripture was written, we are not going to understand all that is going on at the surface level without Midrash. This is why the Bible is hard to read and why people get confused, especially when we hear a regressive view like wives submit to your husbands. So in order to tackle Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, or any passage talking about oppressed groups, the first step is to uncover our initial feelings. Now, all of us are coming into this sermon with different feelings. Some of us uphold that wives submit to their husbands and are a little frustrated because they feel I am misrepresenting them. Some of us have no idea what they feel about this passage, so they're waiting for my hot take. <laughs> Some of us don't know how to reconcile their faith with their worldview because both are so different, so they live in this constant state of cognitive dissonance. And some of us are content to say, this passage is regressive. Let's just fight the patriarchy. <laughs> I want us to take a moment and ask ourselves, how do we feel about this passage? What feelings arise? What am I bringing into this space? What keeps me from listening to Donna? What keeps me listening to Donna? Then take a moment and validate your feelings and thoughts. Now, I would love for us as a church to get in the groove of practicing this mindfulness every Sunday, because not all sermons are going to speak to you. In fact, listening to your body is going to tell you what you need right now. And maybe what you need right now is to stop listening, to take a break, to listen later, or to let down some barriers or biases that keep you from listening to me. Now for me, my initial feelings have changed over time with this passage. At one time, one point in time, this passage provided a sense of security because it gave me a clear answer in how we are supposed to live our lives. Life is complicated. I wanna make it simple. <laughs> I also love security and making scripture and having scripture bring me security, especially if the structure is going to get, I love security and having a structure brings me security, especially if this structure is going to get me in the good graces of God. But my feelings started to change when I started to experience harm from a specific interpretation of this passage, a specific focus on what women need to do Oftentimes us women are very hard on ourselves and we perpetuate this um, by listening to sermons and interpretations that focus exclusively on what women are doing wrong. These interpretations are a way to control women and make them the source of the problem when they speak out against their oppressors in ways that make men feel uncomfortable. These interpretations silence women it makes us quick to trust a man's opinion over a woman, and it is why sexual assault and abuse is common among male clergy, as we see today. 
The list continues when you start talking about women of color and queer folk. But those sermons have already been preached by JC and Laura, so go back and listen to them if you have not already. This is why we need to recognize that everyone is invited to do midrash, not just men. And what we'll find by listening to other voices is there is a lot to read between the lines of this passage in Ephesians. Now, going back to what I said about scripture being confusing, what is not said is what is assumed by the intended audience. And what is assumed here is Greco-Roman household codes. In Rachel Held Evans' book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, she writes in the chat, all three of the passages that instruct wives to submit to their husbands are either preceded or followed by instructions for slaves to submit to their masters. That's really weird. Why is this? She continues, biblical passages about wives submitting to their husbands are not, as many Christians assume, rooted in the culture epitomized by June Cleaver's kitchen, but in a culture epitomized by the Greco-Roman household codes, which gave men unilateral authority over their wives, slaves, and children. In Rachel's book, which is a satire slash commentary on evangelical interpretations of womenhood, Rachel goes on to describe how Paul's context was him trying to describe the significance of Christ and how to live like Christ within his cultural context. In his cultural context, Paul had the Greco-Roman household codes, which are codes connected to the first century philosophers Philo and Josephus, who argued that a man's authority over his household was critical to the success of a society. In other words, these values of a man at the head of a house are not prescribed by Paul. They are prescribed by the patriarchal culture of his time. See, what Paul was doing was he was taking these prescribed codes, husbands and wives, masters and slaves and fathers and children, and trying to apply Christ in these relationships. We would not know this if we didn't do a little midrash and read between the lines asking the question, what is assumed by the audience? Now, I don't know if Paul was intentionally trying to subvert the patriarchy because it's all he knows at this point. But I do think in hindsight, reading these passages within the context of Greco-Roman household codes, it subverts our expectations of what is happening in these passages, much like what Jesus does all the time. Rachel continues in her book. When typical Greco-Roman household codes required nothing of the head of the household regarding fair treatment of subordinates, Peter and Paul encouraged men to be kind to their slaves, be gentle with their children, and shockingly, to love their wives as they love themselves. Furthermore, the Christian versions of the household codes are the only ones that speak directly to the less powerful members of the household, the slaves, wives, and children, probably because the church at the time consisted of just such powerless people. In other words, Heads of houses were not required to treat anyone with humanity in their household. Paul flips this because he knows powerless people make up most of the early churches. Later, Paul says in verse 25, husbands, 
love your wives. And my guess, by practicing my own midrash here, if all these people make up the first century church, women, slaves, and children, then my best bet is Paul is forced to listen to these voices. And through listening, he starts to understand their grievances. And through understanding their grievances, he can't look away. He has to say something. He has to address the abuse and the harm done by heads of households. And he has to somehow tie it back to Christ in the church. In an ancient patriarchal society, this kind of listening is revolutionary, whether Paul realizes it or not. Paul is doing what many of us are doing right now. We are recognizing our blind spots due to not being exposed to other people and other perspectives, namely those with less influence and power. We are being challenged to look within ourselves and question whether we know what, whether what we know to be true is actually of Christ or of Jesus. We are wrestling with who to give space to. Paul proves his imperfect wrestling by still engaging with what wives, slaves, and children should do for the head of the house. Verse 22 says, wives submit your husbands as to the Lord. Paul is still submitting to the head of the house, but Paul's doing it in such a way that recognizes there are other voices. Paul is stuck, like many of us, in structures that limit freedom for all. Like Paul, we are struggling to figure out how to bring the kingdom of God to earth when our earth upholds white supremacy and when oppression is built into the very fabric of the culture. Friends, I don't think we are meant to follow Paul's instruction on submission here. I think we are meant to resonate and humanize with Paul's wrestling, an imperfect wrestling. And through this wrestling of engaging with different voices and people, we join Jesus in making all things new. I think in order for this text to apply to us now, we need to look at the heart of this passage. And I think the heart of this passage is in light of Jesus. Jesus had a way of flipping hierarchy on its head. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, it says, in speaking to them about authority, he, Jesus, said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, it is not the job of women or the marginalized to do the work to gain equality with men. According to Jesus, the work starts at the top, the people who have, not the people who have not. Now within this paradigm of a hierarchical kingdom, it's a race to grab more and more power. That's how kingdoms and hierarchies work. You're just trying to get to the top. The race or goal of a hierarchy is to be the one with the most power at, this, at the expense of others. But instead, in this verse, we see Jesus is saying that we need to be racing to give up our power. I'll say that again. We need to be racing to give up our power, to become the servant, to give our lives 
as a ransom for many. This flips the kingdom hierarchy upside down. And this is where we get God's upside down kingdom. In Ephesians, you have a context for women, slaves, and children are already there at the bottom. Paul is wrestling with this complicated paradigm of Jesus flipping hierarchy. So Paul's response is trying to give dignity and meaning to those that are already at the bottom by creating the model of the relationship between Christ and the church established through servant love. The goal then is to recognize where we fit in this upside down kingdom. Are we someone who finds themselves at the bottom of the paradigm? Or are we someone who is already at the top? And maybe we're somewhere in the middle, or maybe it depends on where we're at. And in understanding our positions, it will help us know what to do next. For me, as I look back at nine-year-old Donna, who was told by a boy in youth group that she could not become a pastor, she eventually believed him. She eventually believed him. And she found other acceptable ways for women to exercise her gifts in a limiting culture. She got involved with the college campus ministry and served as a leader for five years, leading and growing small groups and big groups that included men. When she wasn't allowed to lead men in the church, so I was leading small groups in my campus ministry with men, for men, and I couldn't do that in the church. That wasn't allowed. I got, or she got, her teaching credential and exercised her skills in a classroom for five years. When in the church, her teaching skills were left unnoticed. All the while, she stayed in the church, but she stayed in the church as a listener, often setting her voice and herself to the side. And as she listened, her views started to change and she became more inclusive of women, black indigenous people of color and the LGBTQ plus community. Then finally, something inside of her caught her attention. It was a stirring that had been there this whole time, a very soft and a very quiet voice. No, that's not true. That's not true. I am a pastor. And at this time, she could not utter those words. It was in her mind, but she couldn't say them. But the spirit interceded and told her, pursue the pulpit. And so she did, but because she had listened and boldly proclaimed that all are welcome at the table, gay, straight, woman, non-binary, people with answers, people without answers, neurotypical, neurodivergent, Jew, Gentile, she was denied access to the pulpit. And suddenly in that moment, the spirit moved. She knew in that moment, standing before her male gatekeeper, that she was a pastor, that it was time to take up space. 
Friends, the application from the Ephesians passage can be this. Where am I invited to surrender space willingly with the humility and love of Jesus? And where am I invited to take hold of space willingly with the humility and love of Jesus? In answering this question for myself, I eventually found a space here at City Church where I don't have to pry equality from a group of Christian men. In fact, Brenna, who is our other pastor here at City Church, used her experience and awareness of what typically happens with women with pastoral gifts to inform how to work with me. It was pretty simple. She asked me if I wanted to become a pastor, and then she gave me the tools and resources to become a pastor while still valuing my voice. So now I am becoming a pastor and I'm preaching at the pulpit and I'm taking up space. Now on the flip side, although there are so many spaces like this Sunday where I should take up space, there are also plenty of ways I need to surrender space. Earlier this week, a 21-year-old white man stormed into three Asian-owned massage parlors, killing eight people, six of them being Asian women. This man, who will not be named this morning, committed a hate crime against Asian women that stems from a culture that values white supremacy, misogyny, and anti-Asian hate. And no, I am not talking about the wider American culture right now. This young man is a pastor's kid and an active member of a Southern Baptist church. Church, as much as we want to distance ourselves from this incident, we can't. We are a part of an institution that allowed for a white man to commit this hate crime against Asian, women because we are we allow men to give the excuse of sexual addiction to commit harm change starts here church and unfortunately the media and people involved in this case still make his story and voice more important than the lives lost so we are going to create space this morning to honor and say the names of the lives lost in the Atlanta spa shootings. My friends, Esther, Heather, Charmaine, and Lisa are going to read off the names of the victims of the Atlanta spa shootings. I invite you to say their names with us. We will put their names in the chat here and we will take turns. They will say one name, then you will repeat their name back like we do after reading scripture where someone like me would say, people of God, this is the word of God. And you would say, thanks be to God. Very similar to that. And then we'll continue this until we're done. After Lisa reads the last name, we will have a 15 second pause for remembrance. And then Lewis Thaxton is going to pray us out. And finally, to my Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander friends with us this morning, we see you. City Church of Long Beach sees you 
I see you and I am listening. Park Soon Chong. Kim Hyun Jong. Kim Soon Ja. Yu Yong Xiao Jie Tan Tao Yao Feng Ashley Yan <laughs> 